See, it's not hard to come and worship Jesus when you love Him. Now, if you don't, well, then it'd be a real bummer. <laughs> Just to be honest, but, you know, this September, sometime, I don't know when, but sometime in September, uh, I will have been with Jesus for 48 years. 48 years. And, uh, you know, I was just a dumb hippie, strung out on drugs, so I don't remember the exact date. I could go back, and I know an event that was there that if I wanted to, I could go to my old high school and find the day and figure it out. But I think God knows the day, and that's good enough. I know it was just sometime in September, you know, just strung out on drugs, and this this uh, wonderful Savior broke in my world when I wasn't even looking for it. I wasn't wanting it. I lived a party. That was it. I just lived lived for drugs. That was That was all I lived for. What a worthless life and then he broke in my world and I'll tell you what I do not regret one day of this life not one day I've had some hard times it's been difficult but Jesus has always always been good always one of the things about that revival that I was saved in which was a genuine revival to have been in the uh, 70's and uh was the second coming of Christ was preached constantly. I mean, constantly. It was just always there before us. You had to go and reach the lost because Jesus is coming back and time is short and you don't know when that day will be. And now it's 48 years later. And guess what? I still believe He's coming. I haven't given up that hope. I still believe it. And part of the brilliance, the brilliance of the Word of God, of what Jesus did in laying out His second coming is He did it so that every generation from the time of His death and resurrection, that every generation could look at their generation and see, yes, it could be now. Today could be the day. It could be any time that He would break into our world. And so I need to get ready because Jesus is coming back and I need to help others get ready because Jesus is coming back. Now what has happened, and I'm sorry to say, is after that revival, pretty much it just kind of seemed the church by and large kind of forgot about the second coming except a few you know, particular groups out there. But the majority of the church does not live mindful of it. Well, I had a, a, a guy I led to the Lord roughly 40 years ago when I was pastoring in Detroit. And uh, yesterday he sent me a text. Once in a while I'll get something from him. And it was a, the link to a YouTube video of a, uh, of a song. It's not a worship song, but uh, a really good song. So I, I uh, ended up listening to it and just, you know, texting back a, a brief comment. But it's uh, Come Jesus Come by a man, man named Stephen Witter or something like that. I don't know. And uh, it's a, 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 basically a, a, a choir in a large recording studio and this one guy is singing uh, the uh, lyrics of the song and it's just, it's powerful. It's not a worship song. And so I listened to it last night and this morning I got up and, you know, I just decided to put it on again and so I listened to it again and, and when it was done, I just felt like the Holy Spirit dumped a message in my heart. I had something already planned. I was going in one particular direction. He's like, it's like way over here. An hour later, the message was done. I mean, it's like, I, that's when I know it's a God thing, when it's just like, just pours into you, and you just know what you're to speak. And so we're going to look at, come Lord Jesus. We're going to go to the very last chapter of the Bible, and we're going to look at some 
a portion of that, uh, verses 11 through 21. I want to see what Jesus has to say to us through this. Father, we come before you now in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus, and we ask for your blessing on this word, anoint it, and Lord, give each of us ears to hear. And Lord, for anybody that is not right with you, whether they claim to be a Christian or not, anybody who is not right with you, I pray that you would convict them and draw them home to yourself. In the precious and wonderful name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, when you look at that, the one who is testifying to these things is Jesus. He says, Yes, I'm coming. And then what did uh, John end up doing? He ended up adding, Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Come. So he was longing that long ago, okay? Back in the first century, he's longing for the second coming of Christ. You read Paul's writings on, his, on the second coming of Christ, and there's that longing, that desire for his return. But do we live, I'm asking this for Christians now, or those who claim to be Christian, do you live like Jesus coming back at any moment? Do you live ready as if he spoke a word right now and let everybody know that trumpet sound and bam, he comes back? Would you go in the rapture? Because I happen to believe in the rapture. I believe it's good Bible. Or would you be left behind? Are you ready for his return? And I'll tell you what, this is so serious, and Jesus is so serious about this, that he constantly, in his preaching, was bringing out the aspect of needing to get ready. Get right, because I'm coming back soon. Live right, because you never know the day and the hour where I will come, or the day or the hour where you'll breathe your last. Do we live like Jesus coming back? Do we long for his return? Are you so stuck in this world that you kind of hope it's a long time away before he comes? Or is it that you are longing, longing for Him and longing for the transformation in your life, something that is so miraculous, something that is so radical, that when we, when we die or He calls us home, that we are immediately changed and we are, 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 are derobed of this physical body and robed in a brand new spiritual body to be with Him forever and ever. Never again to sin. Never again to have a sin nature. Never again to deal with the issues we had to deal with. No more sin. No more problems. No more pain is gone. It's not a fantasy world. It's a real thing. Because the one who created heaven and earth became human and He came down and He testified and He says, I am coming soon. And I have prepared for you a new heaven and a new earth. I have prepared a place for those who love me. And so I don't think you can have any greater authority than the one who created them to say that they're real. And so that's really what it is. He spoke of this reality. And I guess it's going to have to be by faith whether we believe it or not. But you know what? We really know there's something wrong. I mean, anybody here that's not a real Christian, you know something's wrong in this world. You know there's something wrong in you. You know that this world wasn't made for all the craziness. And the pain you've experienced, how many times have you in your own life ended up speaking about, I wasn't made for this. Why am I having to go through all this? Why is there all this pain? We know deep inside of us that there is something different than what we are experiencing in this world. But yet people who don't know Christ... <clears throat> don't have the ability to put their finger out. They don't know what this problem is. They say this world is broken, but they don't know what a fixed world looks like. 
They don't know what a fixed life really looks like. All they know is they look in the mirror and they know the pain, the sorrow, the struggles they go through. They feel the, 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 all the agony of it, but they don't know how to get out of it. See, when I was a young man strung out on drugs, I mean, the, 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 the hippie, that's what I was. I was a hippie. The, the whole drug culture, it gives no joy. I mean, you drowned out your pain, your struggles and drugs and alcohol, that's it. But there's no joy in it. It's just masking over everything. And even then, you know, something's not right. I mean, you're blown away and you know, something's not right. This isn't what I was created for. But you don't know how to get out of it because you don't know what out even looks like. You don't even know where that out is. You see, our condition, our spiritual and moral condition is extremely important and Revelation 22, verses 11 and 12. says, Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. Let him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. Now, this is actually a wonderful couple of verses, and a couple of very terrifying verses as well. So the idea is this, let him who does wrong, him who does evil, him who is a God-hater and all that he does, let him be that forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Let him be that forever, without any hope of change then, because when we breathe our last, what we are is sealed for eternity. And so that's what he's saying here. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Because he's going to do wrong in his heart and his mind, even in the depths of hell. But then he says those who do right will continue to do right. And those who are holy will continue to be holy throughout eternity. They will continue to want to walk near to Jesus throughout eternity. Something will change in us when we are clothed with immortality, when we're clothed with this life that's in heaven this, this change that is so radical where it will be joy beyond anything we can imagine just to obey Him. Joy to do whatever He would ask. That He might command us and says, Child, do this, and we're just running to do it. Because we find joy in Him in doing those things. Joy in the obedience. No more the struggle. No more the anxiety. No more the, the fighting against God. It's just this place where we have been so transformed. And it's joy with whatever He'd ask us to do. Wherever He'd take us. Because... We have tasted of His kindness and goodness in this life and chose to follow Him. Then we know His kindness and goodness all the days of our life here because we made that decision for me 48 years ago. And we continue walking and you know the goodness and kindness of God. But yet what He set in motion in my life now is going to continue in absolute perfection forever. Forever. I have tasted the goodness of God, and one day I will taste it in its fullness without anything ever interrupting anything of it. And for those of you that are true followers of Jesus, that should make your heart ache right now. It should waken something in you that says, I long to be home. I'm weary. I'm weary of me. I'm weary of this world. I'm weary of all that's going on. I long to be with Jesus and to be free from me, so I never, ever break his heart again with my sin. You have the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. I shared this uh, uh, a few weeks ago on Wednesday. I'm just going to share it very briefly, though. 
This is a parable that Jesus, Jesus is giving. And parables are all about taking a truth and trying to press the truth home in a picture, in a, in a, a short little story. So some parables are just a, a sentence or two. Other ones can be bigger. And this is a little bit larger one. And so the whole story is about this, this bride... And you have these maids that are standing up for the bride, but the pictures of those maids are, are the church. There's a picture of the church, and there's the day where the wedding groom is coming for the marriage. And the, they don't know the day or the hour. They're not told when that would be, but they are to be ready, ready at all hours. And part of the readiness is that they were to keep a fire burning inside of them. They were to keep a fire burning. They were to keep the oil of the Holy Spirit just full in them, that they're ablaze with love for God, so that whenever He comes, they are ready. So when that trumpet sounds, when, he, when they, they see the procession coming, that they're ready. But see, we're told in the parable that we're five foolish virgins and five wise virgins. You see, at one time they were all followers of Jesus. At one time they were all right with Him. At one time they all had a fire burning. At one time they were ready. They all had the oil of the Holy Spirit inside of them. But somehow something happened to five of them. They became foolish. They got spiritually lazy. They started doing their own thing. They didn't look to the needs of their spiritual life and, and, and just got apathetic about it. And, you know, maybe go to church, maybe not, or hit or miss, or maybe they went to church faithfully, but they had no real desire for God. They let the fire burn out. And then the bridegroom comes, and what happens? They go to trim their lamps. It's at midnight at a time where you're not expecting for a wedding to take place. comes at midnight. And the foolish virgins go to light their lamps and there's no oil in it. They let it go out. And so they say to the wise virgins, give us some of your oil. Says, it doesn't work like that. I can't give you some of my oil. You've got to get your own oil. And when they went to go get it, hopefully to get it in time, they come back. And the groom had come and left. And so the foolish virgins go to the house and beat on the door, let us in. It says in Matthew 25, verse 10, But while they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Those who were foolish would stay foolish forever. Outside. Outside of God's salvation. Outside of His mercy. It was offered to Him. It was offered to them. That whole aspect that they were all virgins representing the church. They were all offered that. They were all given the salvation. They could have had it. They could have been in the wedding banquet. They could have if they wanted to. But they let something get inside of them. And I'll tell you what, this world we live in, especially in this American culture, is so, sens so sensual, so stimulating. I mean, your phones can tantalize you, and just your phone alone can be enough to take you away from Jesus. Because you can become so consumed with it and so consumed with social media and all the things that's, that's going on that you have no time for Him. And you've, before long, you don't understand the fire's gone out. You have no passion for Him. The compromise is creeping in more and more. A couple of terrifying thoughts that's in the book of Revelation. I'm going to read to you a couple of, of terrifying verses. And, and when you think of the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is actually a book of God's love. Most people, when they look at it, they don't see it. They see wrath. They see judgment. They see all these plagues and other things. But they fail to understand that this is really God's love being revealed. How do you bring to end this world as we know it? So you know what it happens? You know what happens? God takes this world and He begins to shake it. Why? 
so that those who want salvation will be shaken out into the kingdom of God, and those who refuse God's salvation will manifest what they are, that they were wicked, that they were hostile to God, and when they are manifest what they are, that's what they will be forever. But the desire of nations will come out. And so here you have some, some of the judgments, some of the plagues that come upon the people. In Revelation chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot hear or see or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. They refuse to repent. They refuse to repent and they continue. Now what is implied here is they could have repented if they wanted to. So you think that this world is being shaken more than we've ever imagined. I mean, shaken just in such a, a way that it's everything on the planet is being disturbed. Why? That people might cry out to God. That they might see their, their frailty, their sinfulness, the evil that they've loved and practiced and cry out to Him. Instead of doing that, they shake their fists. They shake their fists and raged at Him and refusing to repent, refusing to fall at His feet. And forever in hell, they'll be shaking their fists at Him, enraged and gnashing their teeth in anger at Him. Forever and ever. Then in Revelation 16, they were seared by intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify Him and curse the God of heaven because of their pain and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. Now, this is not just something that's going to go on during the tribulation period, and I'm not going to try and get into all that stuff. It's not necessary for the message. But people can go through pain right now in this world and curse God, right? How many people go through struggles and pains, destructions of marriage or relationships or whatever it is, all the things that go on, and they grow angrier and angrier at God? Why do people go angry at God? That's a very interesting thing because, because people don't go angry at somebody who doesn't exist. Right? <laughs> so even if they deny Jesus, they're angry at God. This thing is brewing inside of him, this hatred for God, but because deep down inside they know there's a God, and they know that things should be different on this planet, and they're blaming Him for the sin that they are practicing. It's kind of like the man that is caught robbing a bank. And so he gets mad at the police that arrest him. He gets mad at the prosecuting attorney that had prosecuted him. He gets mad at the judge, and he says, if I get out, I'm going to get even with all of them. But yet never does he look in the mirror and say, uh, you're the one who robbed the bank, not everybody else. They didn't do it, but yet you are enraged at the ones who were instituting righteousness against your wickedness. And that's exactly what is going to go on. That's exactly what goes on right now, where people shake their fists in God's face, angry, hateful at Him, and yet they fail to understand that if they would look in the midst of the pain that they're going through, that there's a God there that wants to rescue them. That there's a God that's wanting to use the pain they're suffering to draw them. If they would get their eyes off themselves and realize 
that there is a God that is real and alive and active and that He is actively pursuing you in the midst of your pain and struggle and sorrow or whatever disasters happen, that He is actively pursuing you if you understood that you might get a glimpse of the wonder of His love and realize that this God is a God that walks with His people through the, through, with them through the midst of the pain. Going back to Revelation 22, verses 13 and 14. Jesus speaking, says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Now, he's going to do this again in, the, in a couple verses down, but here he's establishing his authority. Okay, this is who I am. This is who's talking to you, okay? I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and end, the first and the last. I'm the one who created everything. There is nobody other than me. I am God. There's no other God. There's no other creator. I am the creator. I am the timeless God that is outside of time. Time is a thing for His creation, not for the creator. The timeless creator works in time, and He works in time for our sake. But here he's establishing, okay, this is who I am. I'm the one who has created everything. I'm the one that was before everything. And so he establishes authority. He establishes his authority as creator, but also as the originator of salvation. You see, it wasn't your idea to be saved. You had no desire to be saved. And all of us that are saved, we are only saved because while we were yet in our sin, He called us, He pursued us. And if He wouldn't have done that, we would have never even thought of it. The whole plan of salvation is so phenomenal, so beautiful, so glorious, that no individual could just think it up and come up with something so spectacular. No individual could come up with 350, more than 350 Old Testament prophecies about Jesus coming and His first coming, and He fulfilled every single one of them perfectly. Nobody could have done that. 500, 800, even more than that, years ahead of the event itself. Here's this God, the originator of salvation, set everything in motion right from the beginning of Adam and Eve's rebellion. Right in the beginning, the very first prophecy that came out about Messiah coming came right at that point in time. None of it is time and chance. You see, this God has the right as Creator to judge His creation. And so let's say you invent something. You come up with this spectacular invention, and you market it, and you sell it, but all of a sudden you start finding a little bit down the, the road, everything starts exploding. It just starts going bad, and all the complaints, and everybody is going and saying, well, I want my money back. Look, at this thing is a, is a bunch of junk. Well, you as the Creator have the right to destroy that thing. It says, that thing is broken. I created to do this, and now it's doing that, and, and away with it. It's done. You see, He has the right to go to His creation and demand of His creation. This is where I created you to be. I didn't create you for sin. I didn't create you for rebellion. I didn't create you for sexual perversion. I didn't create you to hate and all the other things. I created you to love me, to know me, and you will find your purpose and joy in life in living out what you were created to live out. And then he says, blessed are those who wash their robes. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Well, you know, we can't forgive ourselves of all the crimes you've committed against God. The only one that can forgive us of those sins is God. 
The only one that can wash us clean, as we were singing in a few different songs about the blood of Christ, the blood that was shed for our, our sacrifice, that we could be forgiven. The only one that can cleanse us is Him. But you know what He says? He says, wash your robes. And so what does that mean? Here, the clothes that we're wearing, the spiritual clothes that we're wearing, are just filthy. They're torn, showing our nakedness underneath. I mean, just, just rags barely hanging on us. And yet Jesus comes to us pursuing us. Filthy urchins, in essence, that just smell and stink. And everything about our life was just vile and rebellious against them. But yet He's still pursuing us. Still wanting to take us and clean us up. And give us a robe that would be righteous, white, beautiful. And so He says, come, okay, come. Wash your robe. And it's going to fall apart in a second. But yet, what will He do in that washing? He will give us a brand new robe. He'll give us something that comes from Him. Because that's what He wants to do. See, He longs to make us fit for heaven. He wants us home. You understand? Every person on this planet, He wants them home forever and ever. He did not create mankind to go to hell. He created them so that they could make heaven their home. So that they could know the joy of fellowshipping with this God forever and ever. We're the ones that fight against that plan. We're the ones that resist it. And we defy Him and say, no, I will not serve you. I will serve myself. I will do what I want to do. And in defiance, we suffer for it. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Why? What will come out of that? They, that they may have the right. Now, I think this is so interesting, this statement here. I have no right to heaven. I can't go to God and say, God, I deserve heaven. Because my sin demands justice. I deserve, naturally, the wrath of God. I do not deserve the kindness of God. The kindness of God is a gift that He offers to mankind. His mercy is what He offers to everyone if they might turn and experience that mercy and be saved. But when we have washed our robes in His blood, when we've been cleansed of our sin because we've taken the path of repentance and says, God, forgive me, when we take that path, then He says, okay, now I give you the right. I have adopted you as my own. You're now my son. You're now my daughter. And I give you the right. I think it's pretty phenomenal. He gives us the right. And what is the right? He says the first thing is the right to the tree of life. That you can partake of that tree of life, and Jesus is that tree of life. You can partake of that tree of life, eat of its fruit that never, never dies. And you will live forever. And then he says, I give you the right to enter into my holy city. Into my heaven. Into the place I prepared for you. I give you the right because your robes are righteous, have been washed. You are now righteous. He doesn't say, I'm giving you the right because you deserve it or because you've earned it. He says, I'm giving you this right because you came and you were washed. You were purified of your sin and rebellion. You came to me and you cried out for mercy. And I gave mercy. You cried for forgiveness. And I forgave you. You cried out for a transformed life. And I gave you a transformed life. I gave you the power to live in victory. Now I give you the right to this, that you can live forever and that you can enter into my kingdom, into the kingdom of heaven, and be with me forever and ever and ever. I give you that right now because He cleansed us with His blood. I mean, you understand? It's not like, okay, Glenn, you did something fantastic and you have the right now to heaven. No, I have the right only because of what He did, what He did on the cross and dying for me. Now here's the disturbing part of it, the verse 15, which I didn't read. 
outsider, dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Outside, outside of what? Outside of the kingdom of God. Outside of everything that God created for mankind. But yet the mass of humanity rebelled against God, defies Him, shakes their fists in His face, and says, I want to be my own God. I want to rule myself. I want to do it my way. I will not yield myself to you. And so what do they do instead? They practice all these sins. And they do it with a continual lust for more. Outside. You see, this is all about choice. Nobody goes to hell because they have to. You see, the good news about hell is you don't have to go there. Right? I mean, I have, I have a rough draft of a, of a sermon on that. <laughs> but it is. It's great news. You don't have to go to hell. God made a way out. Now, if you go to hell, that's your own choice, especially the more you hear the truth, the more you become guilty if you do not respond to the truth. Because God in His mercy is bringing you the truth that you might say yes to Him so that you don't have to go to hell, so that He can wash you clean, so He can give you the right to enter into His heaven and live forever with Him. Hell was made for the devil and his angels, not for mankind. When we choose to follow the devil and his angels, when we choose to follow a life of sin and rebellion, then we go where the devil's going. In verses 16 and 17, we're given the necessity of the Holy Spirit working in the last days. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and offspring of David and the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Now, Jesus is just talking about in the very beginning of, of the book, you know, on how he sent an angel to John and, and the, the vision came to him, uh, known as Revelation or the Apocalypse would be more correctly the Greek. And uh, here again, Jesus establishes his, his authority, but this time it's different. The other one, he just gave his authority in the total aspect of the divinity and the timelessness of God. Here, he's giving his authority as Messiah. as the one who came to be the Savior of the world. That He broke into our world, that he, could, that he would die on the cross to take our sins upon His shoulders because somebody has to pay for our sins. Somebody has to pay for it. And there's only two options now. Only two options. Before Christ, there was only one option. You paid for it, period. Nothing else could atone for your sins. There was a temporary covering in the, the Old Testament under the, Jew, uh, the uh, Jewish Mosaic Law, but it was just a temporary covering. Only in Christ is there full, complete forgiveness and the cleansing of it. And so here He comes as Messiah, as Savior, to rescue mankind so we don't have to pay the penalty of our sins, so that we can go and throw ourselves at His feet and say, God, I accept Your atonement. I accept what You did for me on the cross. I accept You taking my place. Do you understand? That's what Jesus did. He took Your place. You, in yourself, are utterly, absolutely guilty before God. And there's no escape from that guilt. You are guilty. You will stand before it. The crimes you have committed, they are absolutes. God knows every single one. When you stand before Him, you will answer for every single one. Unless, unless you go to Christ 
and you embrace what he did for you on the cross because he bore on his shoulders your sins so that you would not have to. Now, that doesn't mean you can go out and practice sin anymore, you see, because with this, there's this thing inside of people that are truly saved where they don't want to continue in the practice of sin. There's this change where you want to do right. And yes, there's times you stumble and fall. But those who really love Jesus, when they stumble and fall, it breaks their heart. It breaks their heart. They're going to God. says, God, forgive me for what I did. Forgive me. That was so stupid. It was so evil. Forgive me, oh God. Help me not to do that again. You see, if you can continue in sin and lawlessness against God and not have any conviction, you're in a very scary spot because you have hardened yourself against the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus has the right and authority to command His people specifically, but all of mankind. Once again, this is what I created you to be. I did not create you for sin and rebellion. I created you to know me, to love me, to find everything you need in that relationship. The joy that you have never tasted in your sin, you can taste in fellowship with me. And then you have this this statement I think is so beautiful. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Now who's speaking here? The Holy Spirit and the Bride, the church, the Christian. And together, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to go to the world and say, Come! Come to Christ! Run home to Him! He's made the way for you to escape. He's made the way that you could be forgiven. Stop your rebellion. Stop your persistence. And continuing in your sin, stop it and come to Jesus. Run home to Him. You see, it's not to be the bride that says that or or the Spirit that says that alone. It is to be the Spirit and the bride. The Spirit, of course, being first, the most important. But we need to become the voice that is calling out to them, Come, come, stop the foolishness of your life. Stop your rebellion. Stop your backslidings, church. Stop it. Jesus coming back and you don't know what day or hour. Live ready every moment of every day. Live ready because you don't know when you'll breathe your last or when He'll crack the heavens. Because as true as Christ's first, sec- first coming is, so is the second coming. What happened on the day that Jesus, after He rose again, 40 days later, He ascended into heaven, and we are told over 500 people witnessed that, okay? You want to go in a court of law? You have 500 people witness a murder? I mean, that, that, that murder is in trouble, Right? Over 500 people saw Jesus ascend into heaven. And they saw then the angels that were there. And they said, what are you looking at? The Jesus that you saw ascend into heaven, he's going to come back in clouds just like you've seen him leave. His first coming was prophetic to his second coming. And as real as he came the first time, so he will come the second time. And there'll be the day that he comes, and I don't know when that day is. Nobody knows the day or the hour, but we are to live ready because it could happen at any moment. And I'll tell you what, what's going on in our world is prophecy that's unfolding. Everything is being set in motion. Never in the history of mankind have we been in the condition and the situations which we are in right now. And so here's this invitation by the Spirit to His people. Come to Christ. Come to salvation. He wants you. He wants you. In spite of all the evil you've done, He wants you. In spite of all the people you've hurt from your sin, He wants you. In spite of the the, the backslidden condition you're in, He loves you. His love never justifies your sin, but His love is the reality that He's calling you, that He's giving you opportunity that you could run home to Him. And then you have something that is so interesting. He says, whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him drink 
the free gift of the water of life. Let him come and drink. And you know, this is Old Testament and New Testament. This is what Jesus said, and this is what prophesied about what Jesus said and what would be in the New Testament church. Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Here's this God that is appealing. I have something of substance to give you. I have life to give you. I have something for your thirsty soul that you've gone to so many places to try and fill it, and yet nothing filled it. Is there ever enough alcohol? Is there ever enough drugs? Is there ever enough sex? Is there ever enough perversion? Is there ever enough hatred? You see, we give ourselves a sin, and this this flesh, this desires, this gets worse and worse and gets more and more closed in. But yet, Jesus, come to me. Come to me, and I've got the remedy for your sin-sick soul. I've got the remedy for it. I will purify you. I will satisfy that ache that you've never been able to satisfy in anything else, not in a person, a thing, or an experience. And then what did Jesus do? Chapter 7 of the Gospel of John, in verses 7 37 and 39, it says, On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed were to later receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. And so here's Jesus out there in the temple. I'm not going to go through the whole historical dynamic of it because it's just a wonderful, wonderful account. But here he's at the height of the the festival, the very last day, the very last uh, 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 event that's going on. And he stands up before them all. Are any of you thirsty? Who's he speaking to here? He's speaking to religious Jews. Are any of you thirsty? You've gone through the Feast of Tabernacles. And yet your religious activity has not given you anything of what you thought it would. You've done the sacrifices, yet you're still thirsty on the inside. You know something's wrong. You are still in the condition you were in before you were a religious person. Or maybe you were raised in a religion and you just practice it because that's what you were taught. Here's Jesus in the midst of it. All these religious people that didn't know God. And he says, come to me if you are thirsty. Why? Because religious people can know that soul thirst just as much as a drug addict. Because it's not about the name of the sin that people practice. It's about the reality of the sinful condition of every individual. That our sinful condition leaves us in a place of emptiness, of aching, of yearning, of wanting. And nothing can satisfy that. Nothing can meet that. And so we have to come to the only one who can do it. Then we have a warning. I really... uh, hate the times I do this. I did it again. <laughs> Didn't start my little, uh, my little uh, stopwatch so I could keep track of time. Oh, well. <laughs> Verses 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this book. 
Now, this is a, a very severe warning here. You take away from the book, you're in trouble. You add to the book, you're in trouble. What are we supposed to do? Believe the book and live it. And because we can't live it by ourselves, we have to become people, like Paul says, become strong in the grace of God. Strong in the place of dependency upon Him. So you realize you're not strong enough to live this out by yourself. But there's a God that will give you the grace to walk holy. There's a God that will give you the grace to overcome. Grace never allows us to practice sin. That is not Bible, but that's preached all over the, all over the world. Grace makes us victorious over sin. You want to see the grace of God operating in an individual? You'll see it in a Christian that is living in victory over sin. That's grace in operation. That's the evidence of it in the life. See, the person that justifies their sin and practices as well, God understands, they give evidence that they are not under the grace of God. Therefore, I would venture to say that they are not even believers. Because how can we be truly saved if we are not operating, living under the grace of God? And so he says, everyone who takes away from this book says, I don't have to read that. And, and of course, John is, or the prophecy here is for this book, but this thought is in other parts of Scripture where all Scripture is God-breathed and it's what we use to define our faith. And I'm not going to take time to go through all that stuff, but our life must be founded upon the Word of God faithfully understood and lived out. Now, there's places in there that you don't understand. That's all right. Those aren't the ones that's going to give you problems. Okay, the ones that's going to give you problems is the places you do understand. Okay? I mean, there's enough there that you can understand. Simple. You concentrate on things you can't understand. You're going to get so hung up and so far away from Jesus, not even funny. Understand what can be. Understand the simplicity of the Word of God, of what it means to be truly born again, of what it means to live out the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Understand what it is to walk in fellowship with Jesus and this place of nearness with Him and find the joy of that salvation working in your life. Live what is obvious and live it as it says and don't try to compromise it or water it down or make excuses for it. What he said, what Jesus said, was the truth because he knows the truth because he is the truth. And so we're required not necessarily always understand it, but we are required to live it. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-4, through 4, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of His appearing and His kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the Word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage, with, all, with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. We are in that day. We are in that day big time. Now, I've been in ministry over 40 years. I've been preaching for over 40 years. And I, I can tell you I have seen so many people that once walked with Jesus. People saved in authentic revival. And because they didn't want to walk faithful to the Word of God, they started going after what itch their ears, okay, which satisfied the itch in the ears, so they're listening to these sweet nothings, and they begin to follow them, and next thing you know, they're so far from Jesus, and they don't even comprehend the danger of their condition. So what did Paul tell the young pastor Timothy? Preach the word. Faithfully. Do it. Don't stand. Don't, don't, don't be afraid. Don't, don't cower. 
preach the Word of God because some people will listen. Others won't. Those who don't want to, they have itching ears and they're going to go to, to have their ears tickled. And that you can't do anything about that. But you can do something about those who want the truth, those who love the truth, those who want to walk with God. Those are the ones that, that we can pour our lives into because there's benefit that's out of it. Not that we don't want the others saved, but we can't save people who don't want to be saved. Jesus won't save people that don't want to be saved. He'll only save those who want it. See, we need to be people that love God's Word, that love His Word. I don't know about you, but I do not like being lied to at all. If you like being lied to, then there's something really strange about you. Okay? I mean, you know, you go to buy a car, and so you don't want somebody lying to you about it, do you? I mean, you got this old beat-up jalopy that says, oh, it's a brand-new car. Look at this. Oh, hardly anything's wrong with it, you know? And charging you ten times what its worth is, you know? I mean, it's just, you want somebody to tell you the truth. Why do we get mad at used car salesmen? Because they like to lie. I don't say they all lie. I'm not going to say what percentage. I have no idea of knowing. But it's kind of the little joke about used car salesmen. You want somebody to tell you the truth. You go to the bank and you don't want somebody lying to you. You give them a check for $1,000 and they give you 800 back. So I thought it was a check for, not, for, for $1,000. No, it was just a check for 800 Trust me. You don't want people lying to you. You don't want people stealing from you. You want the truth, and there's nothing more important than your eternity. Why would you want somebody to lie to you? Why would you want to believe lies about eternity? Why would you want to live lies that would ruin your life here and ruin your life forever? Because it's not just that Jesus is wanting to give us heaven. He's wanting to give us a phenomenal, wonderful life in this world. You see, He really does have the answers. When we will do things His way, it works. It really does. Now, I've been married to my wife for 44 years. we got a great marriage. You can't buy that. I don't care. There's no billionaire out there that can buy a good marriage. Might buy a woman, but can't buy a good marriage. You understand, there's things that Jesus does that you can't even see, that you can't comprehend, that if you will surrender yourself and walk with Him and obey the Word, that the benefits of it will begin to be poured out in your life in ways you can't even see. But it means you have to be willing to live it out. Now we come to the end. Final two verses of the entire Bible. I read the first one, verse 20, but I'll read it again. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. So here's the conclusion of a very intense book. The book of Revelation. Very intense. God is bringing an end to the world as we know it as heaven and earth. He makes a new heaven, new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Sin is no longer in it. All the people who did not want to walk with God are put in, in hell. Then hell is put in the lake of fire, which is an eternal quarantine of evil. You understand? That's what, what it is. And, and C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, he, he gave this illustration of hell being this itty-bitty tiny thing and somewhere out there, whoever knows where it is. You know, it's, just, it's so insignificant. All the mass of humanity, and this thing that's smaller than an atom in essence. And, you know, it's like, it's... But yet, here's God's new creation. Hell can't contaminate it. Evil won't contaminate it. It's a beautiful, beautiful thought of what God is offering us. 
Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with God's people. I love the last verse of the book of Ephesians. I love it in the 1984 NIV. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. See, that's what grace does. Grace brings you to the place where the love of God becomes so precious, so real, so beautiful to you that you let it define the entirety of your life. You let it define your home. You let it define how you work, how you do everything. Because when you let the grace of God come into your life and operate, then you see the benefits of it spread. And if you're having some serious problems in your life where you're not walking like you should, right there at the very problem is this issue right here. It's that you are not walking in the grace of God. You're not becoming strong in the grace of God through dependency. You're living through your own strength and you've not come to the place of this reckless abandonment. You're looking for something to happen that may break through rather than this place of just saying, I'm tired, I give up, God. I'm, just help me to love you. And you begin to find the sweetness of fellowship with Him because that's what His grace does. It brings us to the place of knowing this un this love that is so beautiful, this undying love. And why? Why? Because this is all about the first and greatest commandment. God giving grace to anyone who wants it to live out the first and greatest commandment. Grace to love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. The greatest commandment, the most beautiful commandment in the Word of God. To love Him with everything that's within, within us. And out of that loving God comes all the benefits and the blessings and the wonder of this life. And will there be persecution and the trials? Absolutely. But you taste and you see that this God is good and you're going through trials as a Christian. You're going through struggles and you say, there's one day where I breathe my last. No more am I going to be in this world. No more will I know the pain and the misery that this world has. The God that has been good to me on this earth I will begin to know in ways I've never imagined of His goodness in, in the next world to come. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, says, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward me on that day. Not me only, but also all who have longed for His appearing. What an interesting thing. He says... There's a crown of righteousness. I'm coming to the end of my life. Timothy, this is almost done. I'm almost done. I fought a good fight. I labored. I loved Jesus with everything within me. I served Him. There's a crown of righteousness waiting for me when I breathe my last. The righteous judge. Isn't that neat? The righteous judge will give me a crown of righteousness. Why? Because like we looked at earlier, I will have the right because I'm blood covered. I'm blood cleansed. I've been purified through the sacrifice of Christ. I have the right, and here's this right manifested in another way, that He will give me a crown of righteousness to be with Him forever and ever and ever. Not only for me, but for everyone that has loved His appearing. You understand how important the second coming is? You understand the seriousness of that? That we long, we love His coming. We live ready for it. It's in the expectation of our heart. The desire that we live in expectation. God, I want Your coming. I long for it. I long for righteousness to reign in this world. For the evil and the wickedness of this world to be done away with. So, what about you? Is there anybody here that you are not really right with Jesus? And you need to be ruthlessly honest. Don't lie to yourself. 
Don't deceive yourself. This is the most important decision in your life of what you do with Jesus. You fail this. You fail everything. And those that are wicked will be wicked still. You will remain forever in that wickedness in hell. You will forfeit the wonder of what this God has offered you, what He made available to you through what He did on the cross. You will rebel against that, and you will reap the wages of your sin because that's what you worked for. You labored for it, and you rejected the gift of God. But for any that's wise, for any that is just so weary, you feel that soul thirst inside of you. You just thirst on the inside. You're aching, and you know it, and you feel that. When I was a young man and I was in my sin, I had that ache in me and I couldn't have told you what it was. But I knew when finally it was satisfied in a moment in a park where I partied and dealt drugs. This God broke in my world all by myself. I wasn't in church. I wasn't any. I wasn't around Christians. It was noon on a Saturday. And He broke in my world. And right there, He delivered me from drugs, alcohol, and smoking. I was instantly delivered. My language instantly changed. There was a revolution on the inside of my world. That's what Jesus wants to do if we will just come and, and embrace the gift that He's offering us and flee from the insanity of our sin. So if you don't know Him... In just a moment, I'm going to open this altar up. I'm going to ask you to come to this altar. I'm going to ask you to lay aside your fear, man, your pride, same thing. And you come to this altar for one reason. says, Jesus, I am thirsty. I am weary. I am tired of my sin. I'm tired of my rebellion. I'm tired. God, I'm so tired. Will you rescue me, Jesus? Will you give me that cup? I'm thirsty. I'm so thirsty, God. I'm so thirsty. You may be backslider. And you have lived your life for so long without any interest in God. Some religious sentimentality, but nothing of substance in your life. No passion, no desire, no zeal for God. Nothing burning in you. You don't understand who this God is, so you live your life, you practice sin, you think it's not a big deal because you fail to understand how offensive sin is to a holy God. You fail to understand what it really is, so you say it's not that big a deal, it's not that big of a problem. You know, God understands, and yes, He does understand, and that should cause you to tremble. But here's this God that if you force His hand, justice will fall upon you one day, an eternal separation. But if you will reach out that hand, the one hand that's reaching to you, mercy is being offered to you this day. Mercy that you might run home to Him. Mercy that you might just throw yourself at His feet and say, Jesus, have mercy on me. Backslider. It's dangerous to stay in your backslidden condition and go to church. It's dangerous for you to stay in a lukewarm condition on a deceived condition and think, I prayed the prayer, I'm okay, I go to church, and, well, you know, God understands. There's a remedy at this altar. A Savior that is waiting for you. 